WMEX Quincy Boston. Streaming at WMEXBoston.com. And on your smart speaker, just say, play WMEX. The greatest hits of all time are back. This is the all-new WMEX. WMEX Boston. Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Thank you, Ben. And this is Tony LaGreca, and this is The Courage to Hope. Usually we start off with the guest. Tonight we're going to do it a little differently. Um, I'm going to actually ask a bunch of our listeners for a favor. We have a bill in the House that's called H-2164. It's basically a right-to-know bill. It has doctors tell their customers or their patients that they're prescribing an opioid. We found in this country that the greatest number of people who are who are uh, addicted to opioids, it happens because they get a prescription one day when they break a thumb or have a, a problem with uh, headaches or concussion or sprained ankle and so forth. They go to the emergency room, they get a prescription for an opioid. Biggest problem is probably 80% of the people who get the prescription don't have an, any idea what it is. And they don't know that it is a narcotic that is highly addictive. A lot of people who get a prescription today will still be on it a year from now, even though the reasoning they got the addiction, got the the, uh, the prescription was because it was for something that's long gone. They won't even remember what they got it for. And you understand, Ben, you've been part of this right along for the um, for the ride in the past four years that we've been doing this. Oh, absolutely. So and here's what I'm key. going to tell you. I, what I need is signatures. I need to, if you if you have a problem or somebody in your family has had an issue with with an opioid, um, I need your name and the town you live in so that I can put this on this letter uh, so that um, so that um, it'll look better. We have a better chance of getting it out. This is the way the letter is going to go. The Honorable Sidney Friedman and John Lawn, Joint Committee on Healthcare Financing. That's who we're sending it to. Dear Chairs Friedman and Lawn and members of the Joint Committee on Health Financing. We Massachusetts residents whose families have been impacted by the opioid epidemic are writing to urge you to support H-2164, sponsored by Representative Carol Fioli, legislation that provides patients and parents with real-time information needed to prevent opioid dependence and to move it expeditiously out of the Joint Committee on Healthcare Financing. It recently cleared the Joint Committee on Public Health. More specifically, the legislation requires doctors and other medical practitioners to discuss the risk of dependence and addiction, as well as non-opioid pain relief alternatives before initially prescribing an opioid-based pain reliever. This conversation is also required before the third prescription. In the case of patients under the age of 18, these discussions are required to include a parent or a guardian. Already adopted in 20 states, the common sense prevention measure is more important than ever as the advent of fentanyl is making the opioid epidemic even more deadly. Here in Massachusetts, we lost 2,357 people to the scourge of opioids in 2022, an increase of 2.5% from the year before. Preliminary estimates for 2023 show that deaths from opioid overdoses will be roughly in the same range or higher than 2022. So you understand what we're trying to do is we're trying to get this bill passed. And, And here's some of the reasons why we would need your, need your help to help support it. It takes as little as five days for some people to become dependent on opioids, research shows. Providing a timely warning at the point of initial prescription 
give patients and their parents the information they need to be on the lookout for early signs of dependence. Just as importantly, this conversation also informs parents and patients about non-opioid pain treatment options. In New Jersey, the first state to adopt the approach, a Brandeis University study of laws impact found a major drop in the number of patients starting on opioids and a fourfold increase in the number of doctors warning patients about the risk of addiction. Six in 10 doctors nationally prescribe opioid painkillers without telling patients they can be addictive, according to the Helsden Betty Ford Foundation. Every patient and every parent has the right to know the medicines they are about to receive and can lead to dependency and addiction. By supporting this essential common sense prevention measure and moving it out of your committee so it can receive floor votes, you will get it closer to passage and in doing so, take an important step towards curbing the opioid epidemic in Massachusetts, reducing the number of senseless deaths and ruined lives. Now, this is the letter that we're going to send out, is, and it would say sincerely like my name, Tony LaGreca, and the town that I live in. And if I could have your help and somebody, and you fall into a category where you know where you are, someone who has been um, involved with someone in your family or close to you that has a uh, dependency or had a dependency or died from an overdose, I could put your name there and and your your town that you live in that's all i'm asking for and you can go to the wmex um website ben how do you do that very easy wmex boston at gmail.com for right now still you can also go right to the website wmexboston.com and you can reach out uh right through there you can also go to our Facebook page. Uh, Tony, you have a Courage to Hope Facebook page as well. Folks can always look that up and, and friend request that group just to keep an eye on things. Um, we'll put together a central link as well right on our Facebook page and all of our other platforms so that folks that want to send their information and be part of this can do so. And obviously, we're trying to change history in the best way possible and help as many people avoid this fate really is what it is, Tony. And, you, you know, like you said, I've been with you along for a few years on this ride now. And, you know, it, it doesn't take anyone very long to tell that this is not supposed to be part of the human experience. So the fact that we even have to ask for legislation and really insist upon it like this, uh, I think, speaks to that problem. So, just wanted to say thank you to the hard work that you and all your colleagues along the way have poured into this. Uh, folks, it's the very least that we can do is back them with this to help save as many lives as possible and keep the right people accountable. That's correct, Ben. And as I say, we've, we actually proposed this bill in 2021. So we're going into our fourth year now. It's very hard to get a bill passed, even if it's a common sense bill that that can save lives. It's just the bureaucracy is just overwhelming. Uh, there's 5,000 bills in the House and everybody's bill they think is that important. But this one saves lives and doesn't cost any money. And the one thing I'd like to do for those that would like to do it really simple, I just need your name and your town and my the phone number I'm going to give you, you can just text that phone number, 781-799-0837, 781-799-0837. You can text that number and just leave your name. You don't have to leave your phone number. Just leave your name and the town you live in. And I don't need to know any of the circumstances. I just want to know you're a Massachusetts resident and you would support this bill. It's very important. And to give you a little history, my son, Matt, was a football player for Curry College, and he got a neck injury, and it was fairly serious. And we went to a hospital in Milton, Massachusetts, and after about an hour dealing with the emergency room, they gave him a prescription, and that prescription contained 100 oxy oxycodone um, pills 
and they said said three to five. I mean, take take three to four a day as needed. Now this was 25 years ago, but I was the naive parent, and I went to CVS and I filled the prescription, never knowing that what I was doing was writing a death sentence for my son by filling that prescription, because within a week or two weeks time, he was totally on the ride with opioids. And that took over his, the biggest part of his life. And that's, you know, that, that's all he lived for for the next 25 years until he died or 20 years till he died. And because the, it was, they, would they say a perfect storm, he was in pain and he was told he could no longer play football the rest of his life, something he was working with and had done very successfully since he was about eight years old. And they gave him the, the, these pills once he started on them. He found the euphoric high that they give, and he chased that high as long as he could. And after a while, when he tried to quit, he got dope sick, and the dope sick was so bad that he'd go back to the pills because he couldn't couldn't cope with being on with the way the dope sick was. Was in and out of recovery centers probably four or five times, and every time didn't take long once he got out to be back on it again. Because these drugs, this drug, all the opioid drugs like Vicodin, Percocet, oxycodone, hydrocodone, oxycontin, these drugs are so powerful, they take over a portion of your brain. That's that's what's key. They take over a portion of your brain that just keeps asking for it more and more and more. And it, it's near impossible to stop. I saw a TV show on 60 Minutes recently where they had to put a stimulator in a person's brain to reverse the process. And it's on, you know, there's something that they're working on now, but it's that bad that the drug controls the individual. The individual does not control the drug. You know, a lot of people out there thinking the person's weak or they can't handle it, that sort of thing. Not my kid. No, if you don't know anything about opioids, hopefully you never have to know. You know, the biggest thing is never take them. They were originally designed for people with end-of-life care. If you're in the hospital with cancer and you're dying and you're in critical pain, that's what they were designed for. And a group of people called the Sackler family who owned a company called Purdue Pharma down in Stanford, Connecticut, they, they realized it could be a money train because they convinced doctors, they convinced the, the government, the FDA and everybody, that pain was the fifth vital sign. And um, it's not, you know. And so they, they said, if your patient still has pain, then you're not doing service to that patient. Well, a little pain is what heals. And you don't need opioids, which are a critical addictive drug to get over a little bit of pain. Um, I was in the hospital not too long ago, and they kept constantly trying to give me tramadol or trying to give me something that didn't sound like an opioid, but it was. And they they felt, you know, because the hospital gets rated on how much and how, you know, when they send you the survey at the end, if you if you say that you left the hospital in pain, the survey get the hospital was getting docked. So they're they're up to making sure that you get painkillers and it's kind of a system that just works against it you know but we gonna we need to go to something different and that's the key we want to get you you know we want to find some other alternative medicine and that's what we're asking for here is we're asking for the doctors to offer the alternative medicine before they just hand you a prescription of some type of opioid because you never know how your child or how your your loved one is going to respond to it. Some people take one, can't stand it, put it away, throw them down the down the the drain or something. That's that's some people, but thirty five percent of the people in the American population um, go right to it. So again, I I need your signature, not your signature. I need your name, I need the town you're from, and then I can put that on this letter that I'm going to send to the to the joint committee head to try to get this to the floor to vote. Um, we're in the home stretch. 
So if you could just take a, just a few minutes and send me your name and the town you're in and send it to 781-799-0837, 781-799-0837. And uh, for people who don't know, that's text. It's not an email. It's a text. And if you have a cell phone, you can send a text. It's that simple. And uh, Ben, do you want to add anything to this? Absolutely. Uh, I actually just made a post on the Courage to Hope Facebook page uh, with everybody tagged, including WMEX, the Boston Rescue Mission, uh, the MOAR group that uh, your friend Scott Francis that you had on two weeks ago was a part of. And folks, that Facebook page will act as a living link. You can share that. You can obviously, it'll have your name attached to it, say, yes, I support this type of legislation and I support Tony LaGreca's suggestions toward this goal. That will go a long way and we can make a spreadsheet out of all that uh, and again, just folks really want to make sure you understand the importance of this. Nothing changes in history uh, unless we make it change. That's why it says we the people, Uncle Tony. And uh, I, uh, somebody else recently said, if you want to get these politicians moving and grooving in the way that you want them to move, you got to make it popular to do so. You have to make it so that the, pop, the, the these people, these politicians have no choice but to acknowledge that, yes, this is indeed the will of the people, obviously and clearly. And like you just said, Tony, hopefully none of you will ever have to experience what Tony and some of the other people that he has spoke with over the years has had to go through. I don't even, will never understand the true extent of that. And I've spent a lot of time sitting next to Tony, talking to people and listening to folks talk about this subject and pouring their hearts out, pouring their very spirits out. And it's just, you want to help. Most good people just want to help make that stop. And this is how it starts. So folks, really take it to heart. Think about it. And if you want to help, all you have to do is say, I agree. And just let that be heard. If you're a member of an organization, um, talk to the other folks in the organization. If you're in uh, Team Challenge or you're dealing with people at learn to cope if you're uh, and they and they have somebody in their family that's um, had somebody die from an opioid open overdose um, ask them to help just have them send me their name and their town they live in and we can we can put up to I want to get grassroots I want to get lots of names lots of people put lots of pressure I, I need we need to get this to the finish line and we know we have a governor who will sign it immediately once it's put on her desk She's already told me that personally, that she is all in favor of this. We can get it done quickly once once we get it out of these committees and we get a vote affirmative. And honestly, Tony, this is another one of those things. This is not a political problem. This is not a one way or the other. This is a people and people's problem. So help us be part of that solution Get your name on this petition. Tell your friends and tell everyone that you can. This is how it's supposed to be. So, Tony, I thank you very much. And you have a very special interview with another colleague of yours and his story of sobriety. We'll listen to that now here on 1510 WMEX. This is The Courage to Hope. Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Thank you, Ben. This is Tony LaGreca, and this is The Courage to Hope. And tonight's guest is Sean, and Sean's a longtime person, a friend of mine, and I know his story, and he's got a very interesting and a very good story with <clears throat> good ending. So, Sean, welcome aboard. Thank you, Tony. So, it's been about, what, 35 years since I have known you, maybe longer? Yeah. You used to be a football player at the town that I live in. And 
And we'll go back to that era. Uh, we know that you had a problem with alcohol was a big issue. Uh, what year did you start or why did you start drinking? Can you remember? I probably started when I was 13, 14 years old. My, um, my parents were going through a divorce and, uh, I was very confused. Um, so, you know, the alcohol just took away the pain. And, and how did you, how did you obtain the alcohol at 13 years old? Uh, well, back then the drinking age was 18. So I get it from the younger high school kids, you know, and, uh, you know, I'd, I'd pay them to go get me some, some, uh, alcohol. And was it, on the beach. was it beer or hard stuff? I just started out on the beer. Yeah. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> moving, moving along, and and then as you uh, got older, did it escalate? Yeah. How did I, I, how did how did it escalate? You know. Well, I mean, you know, it was just part of my life back then. Um, you know, it was in the uh, early '80s. As I got older, uh, the kids would congregate down Duxbury Beach in the parking lot down there, and we'd we'd all start drinking, and uh, it was just like um, something that I obsess about constantly was uh, having a good time with my friends, um, and then we'd have the cake parties out in the Cranberry Bogs out in Duxbury, and we had a we had a lot of good times. Back then, it was all fun and games. And, uh, you know, I was just a young guy playing football. And uh, I would be like a – I would uh, get along with everybody, the sports guys and the guys of the rock and roll crowd too. You know, I like both yeah. crowds. You'd be like a chameleon trying to fit in. Did you, um, did you ever drink before a football game? No. Nope, I wouldn't do that. No, I wouldn't. Uh, actually, when I played sports, I got better grades in high school. I felt uh, a sense of relief taking it out on the football field because um, I, I didn't realize what it was. It was it was a healthy way to get rid of my anger, not a self-destructive way to get rid of my anger. So I actually felt better and I did better and I slept better when I was playing sports. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> you're saying sports. What was I know football was one. What was the other one? Well, when I was in eighth grade, I rustled a little bit. But, uh, you know, like anything, like going sledding with my friends or playing golf, anything that would be like, um, you know, it had to do with uh, being social with other people and getting along um, and working as a team. You know, I, I enjoyed that. I I enjoyed that a lot. Even uh, I got a job at a grocery store. I was one of the only kids in my high school that actually worked 30 hours a week because, um, you know, I needed to uh, give my mother my paycheck when I was in high school to feed the family. And but then I'd go out and probably have a little too much alcohol because I'd get resentful because I used to have to give her my paycheck. You know, I wanted a faster car and a, more money to spend on girls. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's a <clears throat> typical teenage boy's attitude. Uh, it's, it's all about the car and the woman, right? Uh, yeah. And you you didn't go to college. You went right off to work after high school. Well, I went to Massasoit Junior College for a couple of years. Uh, oh, I that's college. Yeah, yeah. I, in Brockton, I took um, some business administration courses, and uh, then I transferred into uh, Bridgewater State. But by then, I was um, kind of on my own. I had to find a place to live and to make a living because my mother had sold the house and moved to the Bahamas, and my father got remarried. So I was kind of out on my own. So I um, that that launched my. He came when I was working at the A and P. I worked at the A and P, and I and I'd worked in Nantucket for a summer, 
that didn't really do too much for my drinking career. <laughs> no. Man, Nantucket's a tough place to live. Yeah, I can see that. And you would be drinking every night probably, right? Well, well, I work midnight to eight. So if you got off the ferry, you thought I was the town drunk waiting for the liquor store to open up. I would, I'd have the chicken juice all over me, all the dust from the truck and the, working the night before. And, uh, you know, I, I'd, uh, I'd be waiting for the store to open up. I'd have a few and then I'd go to sleep and then I'd go back to work. So Did you ever probably, think that alcohol was controlling you? Or did you still think you were controlling it? No, back then I didn't think it was uh, controlling me at all. I didn't think that because uh, it was just it was just a normal way of life for me back then. And, and all my family as well and all my friends. Everybody was drinking. Yep. And did drugs ever enter into the picture? Um, I smoked a little marijuana when I was in high school when I worked at the A and P. But I had a, I had a great manager. He 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 was a, you know, he was from the '60s era, and I used to go in and I'd work the cash register, and he took me out back and he said, "Listen, Sean, you always come in, you smell like weed." He goes, uh, he goes. Either your draws either fifty dollars over or fifty dollars under. He goes, I know you're not stealing from me, but you you gotta stop. So I gave that up when I was uh, nineteen. Okay, it wasn't legal back then either, right? No, it so, wasn't. So yeah. you had to get it from different places. Um, so let's when did when when do we get to the point where? Um, it was getting to be too much. Now you're in your twenties and thirties and, and uh, still every day, still drinking. Um, well, I used to go, uh, I'd stay out at night and, um, uh, my father used to call it bright lighting it. And, uh, after his, probably in my, my thirties, it got carried away when I, uh, when I was probably about, uh, I don't know, maybe my late 20s, early 30s. I moved back in with my father. He had gone through his second divorce. And uh, I'd go out, I'd work hard, and then I'd go out night at night with him and my other friends. And we'd stay out. He'd go home, and then I'd keep going out. And uh, he used to call it bright lighting it. He goes, did we bright light it last night? And I go, oh, yeah. He knew I he knew I was out till two 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 in the morning and uh you know he'd never say nothing to me because he'd be doing pretty close to the same thing and I and I loved him you know and uh, I didn't think anything of it back then it was just uh, like a, just what we did to uh, uh, to uh, escape reality you might say I guess okay so when did you feel that you had a problem? Well, I was uh, my my problem was I was be putting on a lot of weight. I was a beer drinker, and as a, a traveling salesman, I'd be very lonely. And then um, alcohol was like my lover and my best friend. And uh, I drink a lot. I I know how to make a living, but I still kind of, even though I've been sober for a while, I'm not really that great at making a life. I had a house, but it was never a home. Um, so I'd, I'd stay in hotel rooms and, uh, you know, I'd usually get a 12 pack and, um, you know, I'd, I'd fall asleep and, you know, and then my weight would escalate by the time I was 40 years old, I was 487 pounds, you know, I was, yeah. um, I was doing a lot of, uh, hospitality shows and um, I was really, really a glutton for punishment, if you will. I didn't know when to say when, that's for sure. And um, by the time I was 45, I went to a chiropractor. Um, that's a friend of ours. And he said to me, he said, Sean, he goes, you know what you got to do? He goes, you're crushing your bones. He really, he really was the first one to plant the seed in my head. And he said, you know. My mother had gone through the same surgery as me at uh, 40 years old. So I wanted to live to be 50. So, you know, I didn't think it was caused by drinking. I thought I was just eating too much. And then I went 
and got the gastro bypass surgery at 40. And then things really got out of control. I just doubled down on the booze. I got rid of the food addiction and I just doubled down on the drinking addiction. And uh, I didn't think it was an addiction back then. I just thought, you know, uh, you don't get up to 487 pounds now that I look back at it, having a wine spritzer and a piece of celery before you go to bed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Guess not. 12 cans of beer might do it. Uh, yeah. And you're able to function the next day. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I would. Uh, I was young and I was going to Las Vegas a lot in my 30s and that didn't help. And uh, just living um, a lifestyle that was uh, getting more and more out of control, even though I didn't think it was. Other people could probably see it in me, but I couldn't see it in myself. And you had, did you going to Las Vegas, did you have a gambling addiction as well as the drinking problem? I don't think so. I always managed to pay my mortgage, um, pay my bills. Um, but I, 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 I probably bet a little bit too much than I should have. I, I didn't play in those all-in poker games. I tried to play in, uh, like, you know, the low low stakes games i just i just liked it for social reasons and then uh you know i i i guess i was always been chasing my, my one of my when i finally made it to treatment my counsel used to call it chasing the feel goods you know not getting i never like feeling uncomfortable so you had the surgery and you continued did you lose a lot of weight then well, after the surgery, um, I dropped, uh, I went from 487 pounds down to 235 pounds. And, um, you know, before I had it done, they weren't doing any intensive psychiatric evaluations on people to see where their head was at. All they asked me before the surgery back then was what day it was and who the president of the United States was. And then I was approved for the surgery. I had to go through intensive testing to make sure my heart and my body could withstand that surgery. It's an eight-hour surgery. And, uh, you know, I have every supportive uh, boss that supported me through that. Looking back at it, uh, you know, very supportive. Uh, I was out of work for almost two months to recover from that surgery. And, um, you know, I started losing a lot of weight. I couldn't eat anything. And, um, you know, it saved my life, you know, but I've had complications afterwards, after the surgery. So I've always had the addictive mind, you know. They say that um, my disease is three parts. It's mind, body, and spirit. And I never really looked until I did a self-evaluation at myself to see um, how crazy my thinking can get, you know, and how I can really wreck myself until, like, almost to the point where I'm going to die before I'm willing to change. Well, it comes to that sometimes for some people. Um, so I know you were on a cruise. <clears throat> you got off the cruise ship, and <laughs> you, you went into recovery in Florida somewhere. Yeah, I. Uh, how did well, how did that? I mean, I, I how did that happen? You know, what is uh, you were you were obviously now motivated because of an incident on the cruise ship, right? Well, what happened was before I got on that cruise ship, I was going to a doctor, and um, I thought you could give me a magic pill to get rid of my problem, and he was giving me antidepressants and. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd get two weeks on them and then I'd start drinking on them and I was ending up in the ER and I wasn't getting honest with any about it. I, I wouldn't talk to anybody about that. And then I'd get out of the ER and I'd, I'd start drinking again on top of these antidepressants. So what was going on with me, now that I know what's going on with me, I didn't know what was going on with me back then, was the uh, tide was going out 
and coming in at the same time and my brain was in a spin and I I would get rushed to the hospital because I turned purple drinking on antidepressants over friends' houses and uh, I'd wake up in the ER and um, I'd come back to life, if you will, because I had a lot of close calls that I wouldn't tell anybody about. And then uh, I had to, I kept this job, but I had to figure out, you know, how to get on that boat without uh, drinking. So I managed to stay on those, I, I, they call it white knuckling it. I was white knuckling it, holding on to deal life, taking those antidepressants for two weeks before I got on the ship. And then when I got on the ship, you know, I thought I could do it, do this thing alone without any support from any groups or any counselors or anything. I was just trying to do everything by myself. I didn't know that was absolutely wrong, but that's what I did. Cause that's all I knew what to do. And, um, I got on the boat and I lasted a couple of days and then I started drinking hurricanes and I ended up in the infirmary. I should have probably ended up in the brig for what I did. And um, my boss told me what I did and never felt so ashamed in my life when I got back. And he also recommended that I, uh, I go to a long-term treatment center. He didn't know that I had been to those uh, three-day treatment centers quite a few times where you just go for three days and then you lie to your counselors and you lie to yourself really and you don't do anything about your problem and so the problem just gets worse and so finally you know finally I ended up in a long-term treatment facility and this time I was willing to listen and what made you wanted to listen now I think throwing up blood when I was in that treatment facility, what happened was the same thing you just wanted to talk to me about was there was a guy in there that was a nurse assistant, like he'd take blood pressure and so forth like that. And while he was in that treatment facility, he said to us as a group, he said, uh, if any of you guys would like to talk to me on my lunch break, I'm over by the, by the garage there. If you want to come talk to me, I'll talk to you if you're serious about giving this stuff up. So I think there was 40 people there. Me and another guy went over to talk to him. And he, and he suggested that I do a timeline. It's like what you're doing with me. That's what we call it, a timeline of where the disease was progressing through my life and what happened to me every time I drank. I was, I was, every time I got in trouble, it had something to do with alcohol. And I could see it on black and white, finally, on a piece of paper. And that kind of woke me up to the fact that uh, I better wake up and pay attention to what people had to say about this thing. And he was just giving up his time freely. That's good. And how long were you in the long-term recovery? 40 days. And when I got out, um, my mother had a... Um, she had a, she, her kidneys were failing her. And um, when I was in treatment, my brother came to see me. He said he was going to take me to a, um, to lunch with my mother. My counsel's like, well, that's so nice. You have such a nice family. And I ended up at a doctor's office. And um, my brother told me I had to give my mother one of my kidneys because her kidneys were failing from this disease. And I wanted to give my mother one of my kidneys, but they wouldn't let me because of my weight. I beat the hell out of my kidneys. They said I'd probably die from kidney failure at an older age. And um, it had nothing to do with going to lunch. So I still had to go do some of my 40 days. And when I got out of my 40 days, my mother had gone to a dialysis machine, unbeknownst to me. And she asked me if I wanted Chinese food. And since the surgery, the MSG makes me sick. So I said, I don't want to go get Chinese food. And she said, get in the car. So I got in the car. We went to get the Chinese food. And when we went to the Chinese food restaurant, she asked me to go into a liquor store and buy her a bottle of rum. And I was fresh out of rehab. And, the, and I had an anxiety attack. The room actually started spinning. I got it for her. I gave it to her, but I was mad as a hornet angry 
went back to a meeting the next morning, and thank God there was a guy from Portland, Maine, that straightened me out. He said, listen, he goes, your mother just went through uh, kidney dialysis, and what you went through in 40 days, she went through overnight. And you're willing to get honest. She's still having a hard time getting honest. So, you know, what you did might have saved her life. Because if you're listening to this show and you have friends that struggle, you don't want them to have a grand mal seizure. They have seen them and uh, they're not pretty. And um, seek medical attention if you're uh, detoxing from alcohol. Don't do it alone, especially if you're over 50 years old and you have a high blood pressure and uh, or diabetes or anything like that. It's it's not not recommended. And after you have a soft landing, seek help. Um, but she was never, I was blessed. I don't know. They say it's the grace of God that I, that I seek help. I still seek help. Um, so the kidney dialysis machine got moved to the house and nothing changed. And the funny thing is, is there was a counselor there that I went back to and talked to after I got out of treatment. And she said, Sean, I didn't know who was suffering more, you or your family. And uh, that kind of woke me up a bit because I had old World War II men tell me that I could stay in Florida and take care of my mother because I was getting better. And unless people are willing to get better, they're never gonna get better. But I stayed down there and I tried to take care of her the best I could. And uh, I think she died too young. I still miss her, but I can't change. I can't go back and change anything, but I did what I could. Um, you know, it's they say it's a cunning, baffling, powerful thing. And she was a rehab nurse for 20 years. So I guess it doesn't get stranger than that. There's a lot of doctors professional people that die from this thing every day unless they're That's willing right. to get honest. They're never, they're never going to get better unless they're willing to get honest. So how long before your mother died after, since when you went to live with her? How, how long was that? Um, well, I was down there. It was 98 that I went down there and I stayed, I was there for a good year and we weren't getting along good because we, we were both kind of going in different directions. So I was coming back and going back down there um, the second year to go visit her. And uh, then the third year I got a job with a friend of mine. I moved to Rhode Island and uh, she had come up north to seek medical treatment, and uh, it was about three years she 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 died, three or f three years I think if my timelines are right. Yeah. And all during that time, you you stayed sober. Yes. And yes, are you still sober since that time? Yes. So you've been yes. sober now for twenty five years. No, it's been fifteen years. Fifteen. Okay. Yeah. And I know that you you got a you got a job now that you're, um, you're working at a facility that treats people, correct? Yeah, I, I was um, doing trade shows with a friend of mine, and they shut them all down during COVID. And I said, if I stay home and just collect the check, um, that's not a good thing for me to be idle to stay still. So. I got a job as a um, as a medical driver for a rehab. Yeah, and that that was very enlightening. So, what does that mean? Do you pick people up that are going for oh. rehab? Yeah, I just say it this way: I pick up the mess and I drop off the miracle. Well, that's good. <laughs> And do you get into conversations with these people? Um, usually on the way in, they're sleeping or just taking it easy. 
but on the way home I might I might talk to him tell him a little bit about my story if they're willing to listen in addition to that you go to meetings yeah every day try to go every day you know through COVID I was um, against the Zoom connection but any connection is better than none at all that's correct um, yeah I've talked to a lot of people that have gone through everything and so <clears throat> and um, and they still have that problem with you do you still have to be on a diet because of what you've done with your stomach or do you have well, to be on special eating instructions or how does that work well the um, the surgery uh, what happens is part of my mother's problem is she had the surgery done and they used to wrap your stomach with tape so your stomach doesn't expand. And uh, that tape melded with the flesh in her stomach. And she came up to Boston to get her stomach fixed first so that she could get a, receive a donor kidney um, to nourish the kidney. But what happened was the tape, uh, it rotted her stomach. And the way the surgeon explained it to me, it was like trying to sew up a rotted burlap bag that the, the, the stitches wouldn't close. He went in five times before he was telling us to pull the plug. He was very upset uh, about what had happened. And, uh, you know, but I was grateful for him because he had the guts to try, you know? Yeah. She couldn't find help down in uh, down south. No one would touch her. At least this guy had the courage to go in. That's the way I've always approached it. He he was the same man that saved my life. And, uh, you know, I could never repay him, you know. And uh, he just has a gift. And uh, But he was the same man that told me that, you know, this is what, what happened. They don't, do, they don't do that anymore. So the answer to your question is, yeah, I always, I always have to uh, keep an eye on the prize which is my life, which is a gift that's been given back to me, I believe. And that takes a lot of hard work. And to tell you I'm perfect at it, I'd be a liar. Yeah, well, <clears throat> you know, always when you smell a pizza, even if you're not in a place, you know, or something, <clears throat> it's kind of, uh, you know, um, I'm always arguing with myself with weight, you know, so I, you know, I say, what the hell, what are you thinking, you know? After you know, when you're on the the, the fourth slice, you know, it's like <laughs> time time to put a halt to this, you know. So you, you try to think of the, the positives of why you want to <clears throat> keep the weight off. It's you know, it benefits everything, especially your knees, your ankles, and all the things that your body is supporting. You know, your frame. Yeah. So so um. Tell me about now when you're going to meetings. You've you've had different, different. What do you call them? Uh, not associates, but you call them. Um, oh, sponsors. Sponsor. That's correct. How, do, how yeah. does a sponsor? How does a sponsor pick you? How do you pick the sponsor? How does that work? Well, what I do, what I've done is I just look when I was in when I was brand new. I look for the toughest guy I could find because I wasn't a good listener. Like you get a, if you played football, usually at least when I played the lineman coach coaches were pretty tough. When I got down to Florida, I couldn't get tougher men than my life. I mean, my father had died in my thirties. I didn't end up down there and in recovery until I was 45. So I ended up with the guy would be like about as old as my father and his, you know, and, um, those old timers, they'd get in your face down there and they weren't really kind to you. They were World War II guys. They didn't have time for any bullshit. I don't mean to swear, but uh, they didn't have time for it, you know? And they'd, they'd sit down next to you and they'd open up a newspaper and they'd open it up to the obituaries and they'd say, hey, Sean, I don't see you in here. <laughs> they'd do some pretty cool stuff. They'd be like... Uh, Here's five bucks to go get a refund on your misery. <laughs> yeah. 
And, uh, you know, they were just testing my emotional state of being. I knew what they were doing. It would be like uh, football coaches, you know, the old guys, they didn't wear face masks. You could tell they were pretty tough. The nose would be on the side of their face. And if, you know, if they weren't missing a few teeth, they probably weren't good at their job. Yeah. That's a scary thought. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was scary times back then. They didn't have a lot of protective gear. No. The helmets were pretty, were like leather. Instead of, you know, now I consider the helmets practically the dangerous thing that they got out there. You know, Uh even though though it protects their head, it doesn't doesn't protect the person they're hitting with it. You know, that's right. Yeah. I will I will ruin the thought after the Super Bowl, you know, it's over. So we won't be seeing any football until August. Unless you live in Canada, it starts a little earlier up there. Um, so what's, you know, what, what's up from now? Do you, are you planning on doing a, being in recovery coach or anything, or are you doing that? Well, I mean, I, I'd help a guy out if he came and asked me. Sure. I, I've, I've helped people out and, uh, you know, I, I, I go, I, I do anything to help another person that was where I was, you know, to, uh, help them uh, not have to suffer anymore, you know. It's um, it's almost like you have to go when you're new. You, like, go through a grieving process. It's like losing a friend, you know. Oh, yeah. That's the, that's the way, best way to explain it. It's, um, it's a tough thing to uh, – takes a lot of hard work and a lot of effort, you know. And, uh, you know, I guess, you know, they say that uh, – you have to have a desire to, to do it and you have to keep on doing it until you can do it, till it can get, you know, one, one it's just like you put it in 24 hour, put 24 hour units. Cause some, if somebody told me I had to try to do this thing for the rest of my life, I would have probably told them it's impossible until I heard possibilities during the impossible into possible people were, were getting through it. Um, you know, just by, uh, I think, through through other friends that were getting through it, just just but by powers of example, and uh, you know, I, I look for those powers of examples. To me, um, they understand me. They understand where my head's at. You know, I try to think positive today, and not let the uh, let a chemical change my mind from a negative way of thinking into a positive way of thinking. It's just a lie. You know, if I'm on a, if I'm on a mind altering thing, it's, that's not doing me any good. It's, it's not giving me relief anymore. I didn't even realize that, uh, until I went to the treatment that alcohol is a depressive drug. How's a depressive drug going to work with a, uh, antidepressive drug? It doesn't work. You're not giving yeah, it. It sounds like you're not even giving it a chance to work. I mean, these basic things that you think that every human being would know, they don't. I mean, I never read the side of the bottle, or if I did, I wouldn't care what it said. You know? No, you just were concerned about the contents inside. Yeah. Yeah, it was like, you know, like the, the medication would say, don't drink on this medication, but I drink on the medication. And it was like, you, you just... You don't drink when you're taking antibiotics, even. You know, it's not a good idea. You know, you're not giving the medicine a chance to work. You know, mm-hmm. it's just like I didn't feel right in the head until I gave it at least 90 days. At 90 days, I felt so good. I felt young again. I felt like I was a kid again. It was like it was like all the clouds, the cloud, the cloudiness and the darkness in my brain just went away. So you could definitely say it was a life change altering situation. Um, oh, definitely. You know, if I kept going, I've been to see psychiatrists. Um, a friend of mine thought I was suffering from depression because I used to fall asleep in the booth 
when I first went working for him. My old boss, I'd fall asleep in the booth on him too. And uh, I didn't realize that after the gastro bypass surgery, um, I had anemia. And I was going to doctors for years um, trying to figure out what was going on with me. So I thought it was something psychological. So I went to a psychiatrist and he gave me a clean bill of health. He said, no, if you didn't stop drinking, you would have died. But it's something physical with you. He goes, you just got to get off the edge, you know, because I told him about my lifestyle. I'm a little crazy still, but uh, I don't drink and I don't do drugs. And he said, well, he goes, keep going to the doctor. And so I kept going to the doctor. He changed my diet, gave me medicine. Finally ended up at a hematologist and uh, it was an iron deficiency. I didn't realize that iron carries the oxygen to your organs. And after that surgery, there's something to do with your small intestines or something that won't absorb iron. So I was actually put in a depressive drug on top of an iron deficiency <laughs> taking antidepressants and that was like the perfect storm and I didn't even know I was in it for five years and even after the five years even after I sobered up I still suffered from the um from the um from the iron deficiency it took me a long time to figure out why I was in so much distress after the surgery I had two more operations. I had an interception, which was the intestines twist on each other and the, um, and the hernia operation. But all along, all those three operations, I had the iron deficiency going on and nobody caught it because it was, it's like sometimes you don't catch the obvious, you know, something, something, oh, yeah. uh, you know, they just don't, they don't look at obvious things. It's right in front of them. I think. Yeah. They they have narrow vision. Yeah. And they, they sometimes they in, in everything in life people want to make it make it what they want it to be. Yeah. And if you got even if they see it's something else, they still want to make it what they want it to be. Correct. So Sean, yeah. <clears throat> before we close on this discussion, what would you would what would you say you 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 wanted to say something that I didn't ask you? What would you say to a, a person that's thinking about rehab or struggling now with addiction, whether it be drugs or alcohol or gambling. And what, what would you say to them about the, the difference in <clears throat> the life that they have now and the life that they could have? Well, I think it's something that they have to experience for themselves. They owe it to themselves to try and not to give up on themselves. I've known people that have, gone to treatment over 140 times before the miracle happened. And those guys are good friends of mine. They told me that if they didn't go into treatment 140 times, they probably would be dead. Um, I believe that you're responsible for the effort, not the outcome in this world. And I believe that you should never, ever, ever give up on yourself. I believe that... Uh, Suicide is a permanent problem to a temporary, I mean, a permanent solution to a temporary problem. I believe that the power of unity can save a man's life. If you have a team, a team approach to this problem, which is something that I, that I never had until I, until I was given it to me. And I believe that the power of unity is what saved my life. I believe that there's always been good people put in my life. For a purpose, but I was really never listen, willing to listen to them. But they had to tell me about myself um, until I was willing to listen. Uh, they call it sometimes, people call it the gift of desperation. You know, I mean, unfortunately, I don't know why. I'm the type of guy, I'm a real stubborn Irishman that um, has to be in a lot of pain before he's willing to change. What's the name of your show? The Courage to Hope. Okay. Hang on, pain ends. That's hope. Hang on, okay. pain ends. Yeah. Well, that's very good. And I want to thank you for taking the time out today to having mm -hmm. this discussion with us. And basically what you just said was group therapy is a good thing. Mm -hmm. Whether it be at a AA meeting or 
even a meeting with your counselor and others, other people at the same time. So you mm -hmm. can, you know, I, I'm involved with a grief group and the same thing. Everybody is, is uh, they're with their peers when they're doing that, you know, because they were all <clears throat> having grief about losing somebody close to them. And, um, and it's it's sometimes it's better when you're dealing with other people who are in the same position so they understand each other. Well, again, I want to thank you for taking out the time for us today. I really appreciate your story, and mm -hmm. I hope others listening to that story realize that there is there is hope. Sean, you 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 went down that road for 25 years with alcohol, mm -hmm. and yeah. you came out of it, and you're here with us today. And you, Got that opportunity yeah. to shovel snow this week, you know? <laughs> yeah, I'm grateful to shovel snow. I never thought I'd live to hear that. <laughs> yeah, you, as long as you're, uh, as long as you're alive, you can be grateful for anything. You saw the Super Bowl and a few other things this week, so appreciate your time. Thank you, thank you, Tony.